go ahead and stand together. We want to give God the glory today. He is the one who has the strength to save us. Oh God. Oh God who set us free from our captivity. Your hand is strong to save. You split the raging sea. You crush our enemies. Your hand is strong to save. Lord, our God is mighty. You are the God who never 
together uh, with this community. So let's go ahead and spend a moment, see who is around us today, uh, and uh, shake some hands. Holy high five, is that a thing? It's probably not. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. Again, we're glad you have joined us today. Um, just one quick thing that's going on on this uh, campus today. We have uh, Get to Know Hopevale, and uh, if you want that next step, you want that uh, to figure out what's going on for you here in this place. If you want to figure out who are we, Hopevale, uh, what do we believe, and how do you fit, we have that opportunity today here uh, in the venue just down the way, that's at noon, and there might be some sandwiches involved, so you might want to check that out. Uh, but uh, this is a great opportunity for you to take that next step uh, into this community and see what this community uh, is all about. If you're having those questions, you can find out more information, if you want, at the Welcome Center after this service. We turn our eyes back to today, back to all that God is doing, all that God has yet to do, and we're going to continue on in our worship by uh, participating in today's offering. Our ushers are going to come forward. I will pray as we enter into this moment. God, we thank you so much 
um, for all that you are. It is only because of who you are, because of your love, because of what you have done through your son, Jesus, that we are able to stand here to worship you, to proclaim your greatness um, and connect to you in this uh, relationship that you have provided. And uh, we pray, God, as you have through the ages provided for um, people like us, that you would continue to do so and that you would give us our daily bread, everything we need for this day. And as we respond in worship, we offer these gifts back to you to, um, as we pray through um, your prayer, Lord, that uh, your kingdom would come on this earth as it is in heaven. And God, that you would use this for your glory, for your church, for your kingdom, to make your name known um, here and beyond. Um, thanks for the opportunity to participate in your kingdom building here on earth as in heaven. We pray through the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You know, you try and then you have just the most terrible, like, guitar out of tune and you ruin a moment, but, like, you just, you just got to go with what you got to go with. Like, sometimes God provides tuned guitars and... Sometimes humidity gets the better of you, and this is just the creation we live in, right? But it's all real. This is real. This is real life. This is what we do here. Let's sing about God's love. Jesus, you endure my pain. Savior, you bore all my shame, all because of your love. Maker of the universe, broken for the sins of the earth, all because of your love. All because of your love. 
you so much for sending your son to this place, to this earth, in the fullness of your plan to save those you love. We thank you for all you've done, for the hope we have in the future because of your son, Jesus. Open our hearts to hear from you, we pray, through the great name Jesus. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. What a great song to sing. So we head up into the Easter holiday. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this service this morning. Nine o'clock, 
Time Change Sunday. You guys are my heroes. I mean, really. This is, yes. And if we weren't doing the whole mission-based coffee thing, I'd say grab one for free, but that would kind of defeat the whole purpose of why we're doing it. Today is also, or this weekend, our student ministries retreat. We have over 230 uh, students, teens, and uh, leaders away, and uh, we're excited about what God is doing in their midst and looking forward to hearing from Pastor Sam and their team on what's going on. Well, we're just two weeks away from Easter Sunday now, March 27th, like I mentioned last week. We're going to have four services that day at 8, 9.30, 11, and 12.30. We will have Tot Town programming for children birth through pre-K at all four services along with the family venue being open. Here in the auditorium, we're going to open the doors to the auditorium uh, 20 minutes before each service, and we will do valet seating like we do on Christmas Eve. Now, historically, those middle two services, right, 9.30 and 11, those are our most crowded at Easter, so we want you to plan accordingly. And so with that, let me also make mention that if you are a Hopel regular, we would love for you to attend at either uh, 8 or 12.30 to make room for more visitors. And with that, let me also mention that out in the lobby, we have these invite cards that you're welcome to pick up rather as, you know, for reminders for yourself or to share with others. So that's coming up. We also have a special dedicated website. You can see on the slide there, Easter at Hopel. Dot org that can direct people to ge- get general information uh, about our Easter services. And then three days before Easter, on March 24th, that Thursday, we're going to have our Monday, Thursday communion services at 6 and 7.30. This is going to be a solemn time of worship and preparation as we reflect on the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus If you're newer to Hope Bell and you've never attended this service, I would encourage you to come. It is incredibly powerful, moving, and a great way to engage with Easter. We'll meet right in here. We'll go for around an hour, and we will have Todd Town open uh, at 6, but not at 7.30. So those two services are coming up quickly, but today as we lead up to those services, we're going to begin a new series entitled The Last Days of Jesus. The last days of Jesus, where we are going to look at stories in the Bible that take place during the final hours of Jesus' life. Now, before we look at today's story, I first want to talk about why a series like this is so important. As Matt mentioned, at noon today over in the venue, there's going to be several people going through our Get to Know Hope Bell class. It's something that we offer several times a year to help people better understand who we are, what we believe, and how they can fit here in our church. Many of you have been to it. Others of you haven't. Some of you might even be planning on going on today. It's a great next step, right, after you've experienced worship here in the auditorium and you want to get more involved. Now, if you've never been to Get to Know Hopel before, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but one of the things we talk about in that class is the kind of church we are, right? The kind of church we are. And to help explain that, we use four different words or labels, if you will, to help give people this frame of reference. After all, we don't have a word in our church name like Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist or Baptist, so it's hard for some people to know how to think about us or what category they should put us in. So in the class, we like to say that Hopevale is a Christian, Protestant, evangelical, and non-denominational church. Christian, Protestant, evangelical, and non-denominational Christian in that we're not Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu. Protestant in that we come from a Christian heritage distinct from Roman Catholicism. Evangelical in that we're part of a Protestant tradition that emphasizes the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in what we believe and how we live. And then non-denominational in that we are self-governing and that we don't report to a larger church hierarchy like a district or a region or a synod. Christian, Protestant, Evangelical, non-denominational. That's how we describe ourselves, and it's worked well for years. But recently, and I hate to bring up politics, I have felt a little uncomfortable with that third word, evangelical, because of current images and stereotypes people have when they hear the word. 
Now, it's unfortunate because it's quite different than the original meaning of the word in the background. See, the word evangelical comes from the New Testament Greek word evangel, which simply means good news, and then more specifically, the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but historically speaking, the evangelical movement of the Christian church comes from this foundation that's built upon things like the authority of the Bible as the word of God and the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. It's this great heritage that we've gotten from Christians who have gone before us, and we should be honored to be a part of it. That is the true meaning and the rich background of the word evangelical. The problem today, though, is that it's understood differently, that when people hear the the word evangelical, they think politics, especially in 2016. They think of a church-going voting block that leans Republican, that has mostly conservative views on the issues. And so when the pundits try to figure out what's going on with the election, when they try to predict the outcomes, they break down the electorate into certain demographic groups, and evangelical is one of them. And i got to tell you that it ticks me off that this wonderful legacy we've inherited that goes all the way back to the Bible, that goes all the way back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's been hijacked, it's been redefined by people who just don't get it. So let me make it clear. We are all about Jesus at this church. We are all about the good news that he came to bring, and we are all about inviting people to know and follow Jesus with us. That is our heartbeat. That's what makes us tick. And so yes, we will talk about different aspects of the Christian life, but they all flow from this essential foundation. As a matter of fact, when we talk about what we believe here at Hope Valley, We emphasize just three core beliefs, right? We believe the Bible is the only word of God. We believe Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and Savior of mankind. And we believe that the gospel, that is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, is the only way to God. That's it. That's us. And it's not like we're unique. You know, there are plenty of other Christian churches that believe this too. I just want you to know that this is who we are. And not anything else that someone in the media or in your family or at your work tries to put on you, right? You got that? Now, I realize that's a rather long introduction. I also realize that I think I might have just covered about half of the Get to Know Hope L class material. <laughs> Which, considering that my wife Kathy leads that class, I think we're going to have a conversation about that later on. But seriously, though, here's the thing. Easter is just two weeks away. Then Easter is a story about Jesus, and the absolutely best way to learn about Jesus is to look in the Bible. It's not from some documentary you see on the History Channel. It's not from some random book you pick up at Barnes & Noble. It's not from your agnostic philosophy professor at college, no matter how educated she or he may be. It's not from your opinionated uncle who rants at family gatherings. It's not from a Hollywood movie based on a Bible story, and it's not even necessarily from well-intended church-going parents who religiously go through the motion but lack knowledge of Scripture and passion of faith. As a matter of fact, I'd also add myself to that list, that if I, as a pastor, just go off on some tangent that is completely disconnected from the Bible and then make some speculation about Jesus, don't automatically take my word for it. Don't do it. No, the very best way we learn about Jesus, who he is, why he came, what is death, and resurrection mean for us all of that? The way that you come to know more about Jesus is to look in the Bible. See, here's the thing. This is what I want to happen in this series. I want you to know more about Jesus so that you can know Jesus more. That's the goal of our series. I want you to know more about Jesus so that you can know Jesus more. And so that's what we're going to do in this series, The Last Days of Jesus. So for today, then, we're going to begin with an experience in Jesus' life that happened less than 24 hours before he was put to death on the cross. And so if you have your Bibles with you or you can pull up the Bible on a smart device that you have with you, let's go ahead and take a look at the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter. John chapter 13. John is towards the beginning of the New Testament. And by the way, John is different than books you see later on called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. Now, like I said earlier, this story about Jesus takes place not just in the last days of his life, but in the final 24 hours before he's crucified. So when we get to John 13, 
Jesus is 33 years old. He has spent the last three years of his life in a teaching and a healing ministry that was rooted in Old Testament Judaism, but was also distinct from it. Like we looked at last week, right? That Jesus came to initiate this new era of God's kingdom work on this earth. Now, a key part of Jesus' three years of ministry was the time that he spent with his 12 disciples. These 12 disciples were ordinary men that he taught and trained in the way of the kingdom so that when the time came for him to, to leave them, that they would be ready, they would be equipped to carry on his work. Now, when I say his disciples were ordinary men, I might be giving them too much credit because when you read through the Gospels of all the times that Jesus interacts with them, you don't know whether to laugh or cry because they were so clueless. They were. They had this certain picture in their mind of who they thought Jesus was supposed to be, but every time he said something or did something, they never quite caught on. And so in response, Jesus at times would harshly rebuke them for their closed-mindedness and their hard-heartedness, but most of the time, he was extremely patient with them. He would even go out of his way to praise them when they got it right. That is the background of Jesus with his disciples. So imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to get to the very end of his life, knowing that he has to hand over the keys of his kingdom work to a bunch of guys who seem far from ready to handle that kind of responsibility. It's like the anxiety a parent has of dropping off their oldest child on their very first day of school ever, or letting them drive by themselves after they get their license, or sending them away to live on their own, off to college or a new job, right? Are they ready? Do they have what it takes? That's what runs through our minds at crossroads like these, and Jesus, as a man, must have been thinking and feeling the same thing. And so by the time you get to John chapter 13, we're now at this point where Jesus knows, but they don't, right? Jesus knows that this is going to be his very last time with them before the cross. So let's go ahead and take a look. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. says this, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John mentions Passover, this annual Jewish religious ceremony that looked back to that time in history when God delivered his people from Egypt. That as the angel of death struck down the firstborn of their oppressors while passing them over because they had placed, what, the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorposts of their homes in obedience to the Lord's command. So Passover was an act of worship. Passover was a reminder of God's mighty power to fight for and rescue his people. And Passover, as we now know 2,000 years later, was also a foreshadowing of an even greater deliverance that the Lord would soon accomplish for all his people through the sacrifice of this spotless Lamb of God. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now I want to stop here for a moment and dive a little deeper into what's going on. For many of us, now I realize this isn't the first time we've heard this story, we've got some sense of why Jesus is doing this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So let's go back 2,000 years to the Middle East and the normal customs of the day. The washing of feet as you entered a home was a common occurrence back then, and it wasn't just a custom, it was also a necessity. See, unlike us, they lived in a hot, dry, and dusty climate. Unlike us, they wore open sandals, not closed shoes. And unlike us, they traveled mostly by foot, not by car. And so when you add up all these factors, the result wasn't just dirty feet. It was filthy, grimy, muddy, caked-on, grossness feet. Hence the custom of foot washing. Now, while commoners might have washed their own feet when they got home at the end of a normal day, the usual practice in a shared social situation like this one was to have a house servant 
do the washing. No doubt it was an unpleasant and menial task, one that was often reserved for non-Jewish slaves, that as people came in, there'd be this servant standing there with a basin of water where they'd wash the dirt off the guest's feet and then dry those feet with a towel that was wrapped around them. Again, normal hospitality back then, common occurrence. In fact, so common that there should have been someone there doing that for Jesus and his disciples. But we read earlier on in the Gospels that this meal was rather hastily arranged, and so there's no one there to do it for them. So who steps up and does this task that no one wants to do? A task that is not only disgusting, I mean, it's on par with like diaper changing, right? But it's also demeaning that to be a foot washer communicates something about your social status and your relative importance or lack thereof, right? Who does it? It's Jesus. Jesus, their master, their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord. And so as he does it, the room must have gone completely silent. Verse 6, he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Remember earlier when I said the disciples were often clueless? Well, here you go. It happens again. Three years into it, they still haven't figured out, right, what makes Jesus tick. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now, by this point, not only are Peter and the rest of the disciples failing to get where Jesus is coming from, but they're also missing it on a couple different levels. A couple different levels, both the spiritual and the symbolic. The spiritual has to do with the cleansing of sin needed for the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, that unless your sins can be washed away, you will remain separated from me and my Father. That's the spiritual. That's the message of the cross. That is the forever forgiveness and reconciliation back to God that only Jesus and his sacrifice can bring. The good news, the gospel. That's the spiritual, but what about the symbolic? Let's go on, verse 12. When he, Jesus, had finished washing their feet, he put, his, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand? Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Do you get it? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I have given you an example, Jesus said. I've shown you how it's supposed to be done. I've modeled for you the way of my kingdom. So go ahead and do it. Go ahead and serve your brothers in even the most menial and thankless of tasks. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Hmm. Now think for a moment how powerful this must have been. Here's Jesus He knows his life is about to come to an end, that this is going to be the very last meal he shares with his disciples, who are, by the way, his closest friends on earth. But instead of following the pattern of this world, both back then and also today, I mean, think of today, even the most vile of death row prisoners get to make their final meal about themselves, right? But instead of that, Jesus chooses to pass along one final lesson that will never be forgotten. He takes a basin. He grabs a towel, and he washes the feet of his disciples. A group of guys who just weeks earlier had gotten into this heated argument about who was the greatest among them, right? 
Who was Jesus' favorite? Who would have the most important position in his kingdom? And so in the midst of all that ambition and jealousy and petty rivalry, Jesus not only washes their feet, but he also tells them to do the same. To do the same with the people they've been competing with and jockeying for position. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I got to tell you, I am challenged to the core every time I read this passage. I am, because deep down, deep down I know that I am a lot more like the disciples than I am like Jesus. I am, and it's not even close. Now, as a Christian, I am so thankful that Jesus has cleansed me completely of all my sins in the sight of God, that he has clothed me with this perfect righteousness, that his sacrificial death on the cross in my place has covered every last one of my sins, just like we sang, Jesus paid it all. And so when it comes to this part of the story, when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, I'm there. I get it. I believe that it is only the blood of Jesus and nothing else that can wash away my sin and yours as well. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the evangel. And God invites every person in this room to believe it with all their heart. But that's not the part of the story that challenges me. No, it's that other part. It's the washing of the feet part. It's the part that Peter and the rest of the disciples wanted nothing to do with, right? That's the part that challenges me. See, just like the disciples, I care far too much about things like status and prestige and importance and what other people think of me. Just like them, I can view certain acts and roles as demeaning and disgusting and below my dignity. And just like them, I've also got this natural propensity to be competitive with others, to compare myself with them, and to find their faults so I can feel good about myself. It's not fun to admit, but I know it's in there. And so the example of Jesus here forces me to deal with that, right? And chances are it forces you to deal with it as well. And so as we think about not just understanding what Jesus meant, but also putting it into practice in our own lives, I want to leave you with a couple key thoughts from this passage. You know, how do you do it, right? How do you do what Jesus is talking about here, and why is it so important? First, how do you do it? How can you get to the place in your life where serving a fellow brother and sister in Christ is something that flows from you, not something you fight against, right? You know, when I ask, how do you do it? I'm thinking more about act, attitude than action. You know, how can you find that desire, that ability to serve others? How can it become a more natural response for you as a Christian? Well, to me, when I look back at John chapter 13 and see what Jesus did, I think the key to this passage, the key to understanding what was behind Jesus' actions is found in verse 1 and verse 3. Let's take a look again. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew, Jesus knew. What did he know? That the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And because he knew these things, what? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. In both verses, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Jesus knew who he was in the eyes of his Father. Jesus knew that his true identity was that of the beloved Son of God. He did not care what the world thought of foot washers because he didn't let their opinion define him. And not only did he know who he was, he also knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. He was secure in his identity and he was also secure in his destiny. See, so often when we as Christians come to John 13, we wrongly assume that Jesus had to suck it up and swallow his pride to wash his disciples' feet so he could teach this lesson. But that's not what's going on here. No, Jesus humbly served them because he knew who he was to his father. He knew he was going back to his father. He also knew that greatness in the kingdom is defined by service and not status. And the same is true for us. 
The power to serve others comes from knowing who you are in Christ. That is your gospel identity, right? And it also comes from knowing where you're going because of him. That is your gospel destiny, right? This is how you and I can tap into a powerful and long-lasting motivation to follow this example that Jesus has left for us to serve others. Listen, if you try to serve others without a change of heart, if you try to put their needs ahead of your own without being secure in your identity and your destiny as a Christian, you're not going to be able to keep it up. You're not. People who are insecure and uncertain about who they are simply cannot serve others. They can't because it's beneath them, because they're too preoccupied with what other people think of them. And then even if you are somehow able to keep it up, you're going to go through life filled with bitterness and anger and jealousy. You will. I guarantee it if you get this identity and destiny piece wrong. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about so much more than your forgiveness. It is about you becoming a new creation in him. It is about you having a new identity with God as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter. So who you are is no longer defined by what you do. And it's also not defined by what people think of you, either good or bad. No, in Christ, you and I, we are freed from the volatility of our own performance. We're freed from the fickleness of human opinion, which can change just like that. And then this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ, also has the last word in where we're going. That our eternal destiny in Christ is secure. See, the gospel story ends in victory. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, as hard as this life can get, you and I can still remain confident because we know we are on the winning side. And so before you leave here today, before you make promises to try harder to serve other people, first make sure you know this, that you know who you are in Christ, that you know where you're going because of him. Let that gospel identity, let that gospel destiny motivate everything you do. Know who you are to God and know where you're going with God. And when those truths are securely lodged in your heart, then you're freed. Freed to follow this example of Jesus and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as you look at Jesus in John 13, as you seek to be more like him, you, you need to not only know how to do it, you also need to know why it is important. So why is it important for us as Christians to serve one another in love? Because in doing so, we show the world what God is like. When we serve one another in love, we show the world what God is like. Here at Hope L, when we talk about what it means to be the church, one of our key Bible passages actually comes from later on in this same chapter. John 13, verses 34, 30, 35, the words of Jesus again. He says this, a new commandment, I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That as we love one another, as we serve one another, we show the world that we belong to Jesus. We show them that knowing and following him is so important to us that we're not only going to talk about it, but we're actually going to live it out as well. When we love and serve each other, we give those around us a visual picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, of how these three persons within one God have for all eternity put the wants and needs of each other ahead of their own. That's the nature of God, and it's to be our nature as the church. That's why you see this theme of serving each other hammered home all throughout the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, verse 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of of the others. Stop making it about yourself, Paul says, and turn your eyes outward. Ephesians 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
out of reverence for Christ, that serving others in the body of Christ isn't just a good thing to do. It's actually an act of worship. Romans 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another, as it says in the ESV version of the Bible. I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. And lifting each other up and being willing to let others have the spotlight. I mean, so do you see it? Do you get it? This is what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. To be, as we say around here, a community of grace and truth where it's not about comparing, it's about complimenting. Where it's not about competing, it's about cooperating. I don't need to be better than you because that doesn't define who I am. No, Jesus does and there's enough of him to go around for all of us. And so as we wrap things up, you know, as we think about this story, as we make our way closer to Easter, before the cross, there's this image of our Savior, the Son of God, washing the feet of his disciples. And with that picture, I'm just going to leave you with this simple homework assignment. Go and serve a fellow brother or sister in Christ this week. Go and serve a fellow brother or sister in Christ this week. And as we also like to say around here, and do so with no strings attached, right? No strings attached. Do so seeking nothing in return. You know, last month in our Love Your Neighbors series, we talked about ministering to those outside our church family. But today, this week, as we approach Good Friday, as we come up to Easter, go and wash the feet of another Christian. Not literally, wash their feet, but serve them in a way that's going to stretch you. Serve them in a way that you're not going to get anything out of it or credit for it. Go ahead and serve them out of your love for God. Why? Because you know who you are and you know where you're going. This is true Christian faith in action. This is what it means for us to be the church. Just as Jesus said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's pray together. What a moving picture, Lord, of your son's love, of your son's humility, but as the Bible also says, of your son's greatness. And as Jesus taught all throughout his ministry, it's so easy to run after prestige and prominence and popularity. But you came and turned the world's values upside down and said that our lives are not defined by what we do, by what other people think of us, but they're defined by what you, Jesus, have done for us that you have brought us into the family of God through your death by reconciling us back to our creator. And so, Lord, my prayer for everyone here is that they would make sure they've got that gospel identity and gospel destiny peace hammered home in their heart, right? That that's nailed down. And then, God, as that lives and breathes in our heart, it's going to change the way we live. It's going to change the way we worship. It's going to change the way we love. Father, for this church, we have the awesome privilege of not only telling people about the good news of Jesus, but living it out in our midst. So God, inspired by Jesus' example and empowered by Jesus' love, let us serve one another just as Jesus did. We pray in his name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand.
Matt and his team did that song a few weeks ago, and I just love the picture that because of Jesus, Calvary, the blood of Jesus Christ covers it all, all of it, and we are forgiven, and we are free. Next week, we will continue on in our last days of Jesus series, but as you go from here, may you go with the confidence that comes when you are covered and freed because of Jesus. God bless you.